0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor, Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? You know, a concept I think that we all understand is the concept of a preview um, whether it is a lady handing out snacks at Sam's Club, wanting you to buy something, or whether it's a trailer for um, what I would consider to be a subpar superhero movie. <laughs> or. W- <laughs> what? Or whether it's a a model home in a new neighborhood that a builder has developed that's wanting you to see what the rest of the houses look like in this neighborhood to give you a taste of what it would look like to live here. I think that's what our text is about this morning in Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. So if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 14. Verses 13 through 23, we're in the second half of Romans. We are completing chapter 14 today, praise God. That means the end is in near. There are only two more chapters in Romans. There was a brother here this morning that was a member of the church and is back. The army's bringing him back and he's uh, getting settled back into forbidding, And he said, Brad, when we left a couple years ago, you were in Romans and you're still in Romans and we're back. So, Lord willing, we will finish Romans this summer, and uh, when we finish Romans, we're going to get into another book, which we'll, we'll just kind of march through Sunday by Sunday. One thing is you're finding Romans 14. Let me mention uh, that tonight we're having a member meeting. This is generally on the first Sunday of every other month. Um, uh, we didn't have it at the beginning of May because of a few scheduling conflicts, but tonight, if you're a member of Crosspoint, we would love for you to come. We're going to Um, receive some new members into the church, update you on a bunch of things, give some missions reports, and pray for one another as a church. We do these meetings six times a year. We'd love for you to come to tonight's meeting. And even if you're not a member, you're welcome to come to the meeting tonight um, and just get a a, a picture a little bit more kind of behind the curtain of the life of Crosspoint. I I think that the church is meant to be a kind of embassy in a way. I I think that's what Romans chapter 14 is all about. We've been considering Paul's instruction to the church, about two groups of people in the church. And he's talking about the strong and the weak. And what does he mean by that? He's talking about those people, the weak, that have tender consciences. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus, they have a weak faith in Jesus, but they're the type of people who are maybe troubled by... Uh, secondary and third-level issues, whether, whatever it may be, in the context of Romans chapter 14, the issue is whether or not Christians can eat certain foods that were uh, prohibited in the Old Testament, or whether or not they can drink wine, or whether or not they should worship God on a particular day or rest on the Sabbath day. These were secondary matters that Paul is saying that those people in the church that have a more tender conscience, he's calling the weak. And then the people that have a a stronger conscience that I think probably, in Paul's estimation, understand the gospel better and have a a freedom that the gospel calls us to, not to sin, but to to walk in a freedom that the gospel calls us to. Paul, in Romans chapter 14, is really arguing for the care of the strong for the weak in the local church. to, to, To think of them more highly than you think of yourself, For the sake of the whole body. And what I think behind all of that is going on is Paul is arguing for the culture of the local church to be a place where people prefer not themselves but one another so that it would be a kind of picture of the kingdom that is coming. In other words, I think the local church should be a kind of picture, a preview, a snack, a model home, an embassy, of what the kingdom that is coming is all about. So with that, let me read Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through this text, which um, I think is, is, is just so, so important for the life of a, local, of a local church. Let me read, starting in verse 13. If you're joining us for the first time today, You may be thinking, oh man, I'm I'm picking up at the end of this book in the middle of a chapter. I don't know if I can get what's going on. No, you can. You'll you'll be able to understand this. We'll, we'll, We'll catch you up and you'll, Lord willing, understand the context that I think applies to all of us today. Paul writes this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin all right well let's pray and ask the lord to help us understand this text and as i pray i'm going to be praying for for god's grace to us i'm going to be praying um, for other churches in our city Um, so so pray with me we're not the only thing going on here we're just a tiny infinitesimally small part of the great, grand, universal body of Christ. and So let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's, it's inspired by you, meaning it's breathed out by you through the hands of people that wrote this word that was, that was collected by the church according to your sovereignty and, and brought into one book that we know of as the Bible, all brought about by your providence. We thank you for the inspired word of God that is without air, it's inerrant, and because it's breathed out by you, and because it's completely true, it is authoritative, it has all authority, it carries your authority, and so, Lord, we submit ourselves to your word this morning, and we thank you for it, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need, which pertains to life and godliness, that everything that we need for salvation and living for you is given to us in in your word. And so we humble ourselves under it. We pray, God, that today as we work through this second part of Romans chapter 14, that you would make Crosspoint more like Christ, that you would help us to love one another better, that we would be a better picture of the kingdom that is coming, that we wouldn't live for ourselves. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, I pray, God, by your grace that you would use this picture of the, the life of the body of Christ to so warm and melt their hearts that they would long, that they would, that they would want to be part of that new neighborhood, which is the kingdom, that they would long to trust in the king of that kingdom, which is Jesus who lived and died and rose again and calls all people to trust in him. Lord, we pray for our sister churches in our city and ask for your grace to them, those that understand the gospel well and preach it, I pray for your blessings upon them. Those that maybe are in error in some points of doctrine, I pray for grace to them. I pray for wisdom and I pray that they would grow in knowledge. I pray that despite all of the imperfections of of your church, even this one, that you would work mightily in the pulpits of of Columbus, Georgia today. We pray for our brothers and sisters abroad in China. We thank you for the report of our brother. We pray for the church in China. We pray for the church in India and Uganda, our team leaving in a few weeks to Uganda. We thank you for the church there, King Jesus Church in Busega. Bless them, Lord. And now, Lord, help us to know you better as a result of our time together in your word. Help us be focused. Lord, guard us from being flighty Americans who check Instagram in the middle of the speaking of your word. Help us, Lord. Help me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to unfold two truths as we work back through this text. The first is this. And remember this great, this big idea of how the, the local church should be a picture of what the kingdom is about. I think truth number one in this text, I think both of these truths actually serve, really say the same thing. But truth number one is this, and it is that love limits our liberty. Love limits our liberty. Let's look look at uh, Romans uh, verse 13 of of our text. Paul says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And he's talking about the weak passing judgment on the strong for their freedom in some areas that they don't think they should be free. And then the, the strong looking down at the scruples of the weak. He says, Let's not pass judgment any, any longer. Ver, second part of the verse, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, that word hindrance is a really important word for us to understand what I think Paul is getting at. We see it in, in English as, as hindrance, but in the original language, it's this, it's this Greek word called scandalon, which we get our, our English word scandal from. And Paul is, is saying that don't put a, a, an offense, a, a rock of stumbling, something that would scandalize the faith of somebody in the local church. So what you, how you live out the Christian life, don't let it scandalize the faith of somebody who may be weaker in their faith. And what does he mean by this word scandalize or scandalon, or hindrance? He, he uses this same word actually in Romans. So if you've got your Bible open to Romans, go a couple chapters to the left to Romans chapter 9, and he uses this same word. I think we'll, we'll, we'll better understand what he's getting at here if we look at Romans 9, the end of Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. This is what Paul, he's concluding this great argument in Romans chapter 9 about how in God's providence, according to God's plan, Many of the the ethnic Jews rejected the gospel because they were still thinking that they could be righteous by their works, and many of the Gentiles who were pagans, God has poured out his spirit on the Gentiles, and the Gentiles have come to faith, and so Paul is explaining that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and at the end of Romans 9, he sort of summarizes it, and he says this in Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. In other words, they're not trusting on their adherence to the law just by the faith that Christ has worked in their heart. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they, speaking of ethnic Israel in the Old Testament and up to this point, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And then Paul concludes, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Same word there. A hindrance, a stumbling stone, a scandalon. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the gospel message in and of itself is a kind of scandal it's an offense to the self-righteousness of the human heart we all want to make ourselves right through our own merit that that's the message of of humanity that's that's consequence of the fall and paul actually says in in colossians chapter 1 verse 18 he says that the word of the cross or the message of the gospel is folly to those who are perishing but it to us who are being saved it is the power of God so so the the gospel is an offense the fact that you even though you may consider yourself to be better than other people cannot save yourself hits every human heart as a kind of offense and Paul is admitting that the gospel at least to human logic is a scandal it's a scandal it's offensive. And what I think he's saying in verse 13 is don't add to the inherent offense of the gospel by the way you act. The gospel is offensive enough. Let it be itself. Don't add to it by the way that you haphazardly live in community. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 13. Verse 13. Which gets us to the point of, friends, do do we even understand the gospel, friends? You may may have come in here and you may think, well, I'm just going to go to church and try and get myself better and try harder. and all. This is kind of the gospel that maybe you've heard growing up. It's a false gospel if that's what you've heard. The gospel is an offense. And Paul is saying that we cannot save ourselves and that Christ will be a stumbling block to many people. And that is a stumbling block enough. Let God deal in their hearts as they... Get to the stumbling stone of Christ and don't add to it by the way that you don't care for other people in the local church. I think before we move on, we should just ask ourselves, is there anything that I'm doing, any opinion that I have on a non-essential matter of the faith that may be potentially hindering, scandalizing a person in the local church or a brother or sister who might be weaker in faith. And you may actually be right. Paul is not arguing whether or not you're right or wrong. He, he, he actually, in a moment, is going to side with the, the, the strong. But even if you're right, the question isn't whether you're right or wrong in what you believe. It is, is the way that you're exercising your liberty in your rightness, scandalizing somebody who might be weaker in the faith. Now, before we move on, this brings up another issue. And it is, is there a danger that the strong might be fearful of offending the weak so much that they walk on eggshells all the time in the local church? Yes, I think that's possible. I think that's possible. Whether it be you know you not wanting to play your 80s soft rock, R.O. Speedwagon or Journey or whatever with the person that you think might be offended by that or whether you may have a secondary issue on alcohol or some other thing. and You may have a, a, an, an opinion of that and you're always walking on eggshells. And now the, the, the church kind of descends into a kind of fearful eggshell walking, scared of legalism. That, that is an issue. And we're going to talk about that in, in a second. But the point here is that I think we need to exercise wisdom and discernment as we live together in the local church. Let's keep going. Verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So here I think Paul is is actually addressing. I think he is gently nudging people who are weaker in their conscience. He's gently nudging them. And actually in verse 14, he sides with the strong. He's saying, look, the meat that you think is unclean, and the context here in the first century Rome church, is that there was this meat that was maybe being sold by a pagan Gentile butcher shop that had, prior to being sold in the market, been offered or sacrificed to some false Roman god. And now they're selling this tri-tip or, you know, ribeye in the market, and the Christians are wondering, ah, should we eat this meat? It's the same, really very similar situation that's going on in 1 Corinthians 8. And Paul is saying, look, in 1 Corinthians 8, and he's picking up on this argument here in Romans 14, look, don't be worried about meat that's sacrificed to false gods because false gods are false. There is no such thing. There's no boogeyman under the bed if you're eating that steak. So don't worry about it. But for the Christians who haven't quite arrived at that point, or maybe their consciences are just a little bit tender, Paul is saying here, don't don't take that into consideration. But in verse 14, he's actually siding with the strong. And so he's gently nudging, he's gently nudging the weak, which I think brings up this, this thing that we need to be aware of in the church. And it is what some writers have called the tyranny of the weaker brother. The tyranny of the weaker brother. In other words, A church culture can become so, what I mentioned before, like walking on eggshells because of the tyranny of people whose consciences are so tender on every secondary issue that it really hamstrings the freedom of the gospel that Paul calls for. So although I think the primary point of this passage in the second half of Romans 14 is Paul's admonition to the strong that they would be considerate of the weak, I think here he also gently nudges the weak and says, you, you need to realize that you're, I think you're theologically wrong on this, and you need to, not, need to not tyrannize the culture of the church with your conscience. So here's just a question. If you, if you might, by the Holy Spirit's prompting, see some of these tendencies in your, own, in your own heart, are you the type of person who continually majors on secondary issues and makes a really big deal about them? Not that you shouldn't have your convictions. We all have our convictions. I don't think Paul is talking about Christians that have, you know, a strong, mature Christian who just has different stances on issues. I think he's talking about people who who are just con- just easily grieved by things that aren't primary to the gospel. Have you Here's a question for you. Have you commissioned yourself as a kind of deputy of disputable matters? You're like the Barney Fife of all second and third level issues in the culture of the church. I'm not saying that you don't have opinions. I'm saying if you get really riled up about these things all the time, be careful that you are not exercising a kind of tyranny over people who are experiencing freedom in the gospel. Friends, there's a lot more that we can say about this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have faith and convictions in certain, or convictions in certain areas. I'm saying that we should be gracious towards one another in matters that are not central to the gospel. Let's keep going in, in, in verse 15. He says, For if your brother... And this is, a, this is a tricky text. Okay, verse 15 is a tricky text. We need to think about this one. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So what is I think think his logic is clear there. I think he's saying that love, he's saying our point, love limits your liberty. You're free to do this, but it may not be the best thing to do in community, so... Consider not doing that thing, and that would be the loving thing. And then he says, the second half of the verse, he says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now that's heavy language. What does he mean by that? Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Is that even possible? That we, by something that we do, could potentially destroy the person for whom Christ died. And the word destroy here that Paul uses in verse 15 throughout the New Testament is a word that doesn't just kind of mean discourage, but it means to actually cause to perish, to condemn, to, to send to hell. In fact, Jesus uses this same word in Matthew chapter 10, verse, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, meaning God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's the same word that Paul uses here in verse 15 of Romans 14. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. What does he mean by that? What does this verse mean? Well, let me say first, I do not believe that it means that a true born-again believer can lose their salvation. I I don't think that means that. I, I, I clearly don't think that. I'm assuming the theological position of the eternal security of all those that are truly born again. And we've argued for that from the Scriptures. I think that is true. I think we see that all throughout the Bible. I think we see that in John 6 and John 10 where Jesus says, I will lose nothing that the Father has given me. In John 10 where he says, nothing can snatch you from my hand. In 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter speaks about our salvation which is kept in heaven for us. In other words, the Think about this, for those of us that struggle with assurance, the Trinity is guarding your salvation in heaven by giving you enough faith to endure until that day. And, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about your salvation as already being glorified, which is the past tense final state of the believer in heaven. And he doesn't say you will be glorified. He says you are glorified. So... I I don't think that this means that a true Christian can lose their salvation. It's not yours to lose in the first place. But what I do think Paul is saying here is he is saying that how we live together in community is very important. And although God won't lose any of his people, We can't assume that we know the future for every life that we deal with. And we have a great influence on one another. So we should be careful about how we influence one another because we can't just assume that everybody who we think is is here. Understands the gospel fully and we may by the way that we're living carelessly or living out the gospel carelessly can have a negative influence on somebody and Paul is being so severe that he's saying that actually you should take it so serious this church life together this living in this model neighborhood that you're living as if other people's salvation depends on the way that you love them. I think that's what he's saying. Even though we know theologically as we piece together the rest of the Bible that salvation comes from the Lord and he will keep his people. Friends, we know that. But Paul is saying, in time, you don't know that. Live in such a way that's so caring for one another that, other, that the people around you's life depends on the way you live. That, that's what I think he's saying. And that's exactly what Paul says. Listen to this. Listen to this, those of you who want to think about how the sovereignty of God fits with human responsibility. I want you to put this verse in your pipe and smoke it. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. He says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Okay. (laughs) So he's saying... those elect God, those that God has as his people, who nothing can snatch them out of Jesus' hand, that are already glorified, whose salvation is being guarded in heaven for a time to be revealed, those, Paul is not saying, well, it doesn't really matter how I live next to them because, you know, they're going to get there anyway. He's saying, I'm willing to... Endure everything for the sake of them that they make it all the way home to what God has already said is theirs Do you see that? I think what Paul is saying here is that the way that we live together is Important and live in such a way that you could not hinder the making home of another one of God's wayward pilgrims That's that's huge friends Let's admit that we don't naturally have this perspective as Americans, man. It's about me and my stuff, and when I'm going to come and get my hit, I'm going to grow in my person, and then I'm going to go do my thing. This text runs 180 degrees in the opposite direction of the average American Christian. And we should not live in such a way that we could possibly destroy those for whom Christ died, even though he will lose none of his sheep one of the ways that He keeps His sheep is through the means of us loving each other. And He goes on in verse 16. He says, So do not not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In other words, don't let your freedom, don't let the way that you handle alcohol or music or decisions about a whole host of secondary issues. Be something that can be called evil because it caused a weaker brother or sister to stumble. I think that's what verse 16 is saying in summary. And then verse 17 is one of the most famous verses in all of Romans. I love it. It's like he's in the weeds and now he wants to he wants to lift our eyes back up to the big picture. And he says, "He says why? why? Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, look, all these temporary issues are really, really important, but they're serving this greater picture. Look, your freedom on these temporary issues isn't the real essence of the Christian life, but the fact that you have been made righteous and are at peace with God and have joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you think that you're losing out on something because you're considering other people more than you're considering yourself, Paul's saying you don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand what it really means to live in this neighborhood if it's all about how you can water your lawn. No, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's about that you have been made righteous, and you have peace with God, and you have joy knowing that your eternity is secure in Christ. Friends, verse 17 is the gospel. That's the whole point of Romans. How, listen to me, how will unrighteous people be made righteous? That's the dilemma of Romans, and that's the answer of the gospel. And the answer of Romans to the dilemma of all humanity is how will unrighteous people stand before a holy God, not by their works, not by their church attendance, not by their merit, not by their morality compared to other people around them, but through the righteousness of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who's lived a perfect life, where all of us have disobeyed God, Jesus obeys God, then he lays down his life on the cross to bear the penalty for our disobedience, and because he's not just a good man, but because he's the infinitely holy Son of God, God in the flesh, he has enough holiness to atone for all of the sin of all of the people that would ever trust in him. And so he dies on the cross to absorb the penalty for our unrighteousness. And he rises again in victory, defeating sin, death, and the cross, and now commands all of us to trust in Him, and He doesn't only command that we have faith in Him. When God saves a person, He gives the faith that He commands, and He makes a dead heart new, and that heart comes alive, and then that heart trusts in Jesus with faith, which is the fruit of a new heart. And Paul is saying that when you have that, You now have righteousness. You have right standing with God who's given you the righteousness of his son and now you are at peace with God. You're no longer his disobedient rebel. You're at peace with God who now is your father and now even though every day may not be happy, you have joy because you know that you will be with him forever. A kind of unshakable joy even in the midst of suffering. And Paul says when you see, friends, by the way, that's the gospel. That's the point of Romans. That's the point of everything. And Paul is saying, when you see that, friends, you you are willing to lay down your temporary opinions on secondary matters, even if you're right for the sake of brothers and sisters, so they can see that too. I think that's what he's saying in verse 17 in this whole chapter. Let's keep going. Verse 18, he says, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, the, whoever thus in other words, whoever lives in this way, in this kind of kingdom-minded way, bigger way, bigger, whoever lives in this liberty-limiting type of love for the sake of previewing something bigger than their own freedom, but the joy and the righteousness and the peace of the kingdom, whoever lives like that is acceptable to God and I think this first, this phrase "acceptable to God" is just a, it's a clear connection to the beginning of this section in Romans, Romans twelve verses one through twelve. He says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God." Here's that same phrase, "acceptable to God." And remember Romans 12 through the end of the book, I think is just an explanation of how the gospel that he's preached in Romans 1 through 11 should work out in our lives and in community. And Paul's saying, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so I just want to make a little kind of theological connection for you, especially for people that might be thinking about what's God's will for my life. I'm not saying that God doesn't have specific direction for us. Clearly he does. But I do want to say that I think generally that question is asked way too personally and way too specifically in a way that the Bible doesn't really answer. I'm not saying that God doesn't have specific. Of course he does. Psalm 139 says that he knows all of our days before one of them came to be. Jesus says in Matthew 10 that he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts before. He knows everything about us. The, the, The proverb says that a mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There's no doubt about the intimate personal nature of God's working in every individual life. But when we ask this question, what is the will of God, we tend to ask that exclusively in the context of personal direction for specific decisions. But the way the New Testament applies it is through, he says here in Romans 12, live in a way that you give yourself away as a sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, And then he picks up that same phrase of being acceptable to God in verse 18. And what's the context of being acceptable to God in verse 18? is living in this other-minded sort of way so that the way you live actually prefers other people rather than yourself. Do you see that? So what's the will of God for every Christian's life? To give themselves away for the sake of others. And in that sort of selflessness, I think God actually directs us more specifically in our individual lives. But when we start out thinking, God, you know, who should I marry? What job should I take? What exactly should I do? Of course, we should pray those prayers. But if it's not in the context of living thus, serving Christ by caring for others more, I, I think we're missing the mark of the life that is acceptable to God in the New Testament. So love love limits liberty, I think, is the point of the first part of this text. Which leads us to the second truth that I think is really saying the same thing in another way. And it's this, that love builds the body. Love builds the body. Let's keep going in verse verse 19. Love builds the body. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, And, and this word pursues, a rich word, it means, it means literally to chase down, to hunt. So think of like a, a bulldog, you know, just going after a bone. Just, come, just will not stop until they get what they smell. And the Christian community should smell unity, should smell the sanctification of other people and should chase it down and hunt it and chase it up a tree until they know that they have achieved unity, upbuilding, mutual upbuilding and peace. And what what are we to chase down? Well, Paul tells us clearly we're to chase down not the expression of our own freedom and the gospel for our own sake, but we're to chase down doggedly peace and mutual upbuilding. So here's a text to orient on, the, on this. I think it's a beautiful text. I read it a lot, but I, I think it's a wonderful text for the life of the local church. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. He says in verse 19, Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. I think verses 19 to 23 are just another way of saying the gospel. You were separated from God. You were cut off from the holy place, which is God's presence. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, you've been brought near. You have a great high priest that has allowed you access. Now you were, you were unrighteous. Now you're righteous through what Jesus has done. Now, as a consequence of that, look at verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think Paul is, exact, is exhorting us to do exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 10. Let us, let us have our, our head on a swivel, so to speak, to consider how we might care for one another. And I see so much of that at, at, at Crosspoint. It's so encouraging. But we need to fan it in the flame. We need to do more of it. Just a couple of practical ways where you can do that is you can just, you can show up a little early, and you can leave a little late. And when you come in the building, you can have your head on a swivel, just thinking, who can I greet? Who can I, who can I encourage? You know, who can, who can I meet? And, and I, I'm going to sit, sit, you know, in the same kind of area, and I'm going to kind of become like the little mayor of my little section of seats, and I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to love all those people. And I'm going to remember their names. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider how I can stir them up to love and good works. And, and the next time I share some stupid meme on Facebook, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to say, how will this affect my brothers and sisters in the church? I may be right. I may be right. But let me just not hit that share button. Or that thing that I say in community or whatever, is it helpful? Is it edifying? Let me consider how to stir up other people to love and good works. That's what Paul and the writer of Hebrews are commending us here. And then let's keep going in verse 20 and 21. He says, he repeats himself here. He says, do not, for the sake of food, in other words, your freedom to eat that steak, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, I think in verses 20 and 21, Paul is saying in a different way the exact same thing that he said a few verses earlier. And I just want you guys to take note of this, is that here we have, here we have a biblical example of a preacher repeating himself. Just want you to just see that. Paul's repeating himself. Okay. And what does he say? He says, don't do anything. It's good not to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I think we need to read that text slowly, and we need to read that personally. We need to not do anything that might cause our brother or sister to stumble, that might be weaker in faith. And this cuts both ways. Remember? Come on, let's not not let the church be hogtied by the tyranny of the weaker brother. So so you see, it's it's almost like Paul is saying, kind of, come on, both of you. Stronger, you need to humble yourself, you need love to limit your liberty. To build up the body and you weaker brothers you need to realize that you're, you're actually wrong on this you need to grow you need to you need to not be the deputy over all these secondary issues and it's kind of like, come on come on meet because there's something bigger going on here it's the kingdom of God not your opinions on eating and drinking and all of these other things there's something bigger we can have these discussions I don't think Paul is saying that we can't talk about these things together Of course we can, we should, but he's saying that there's something bigger going on here in the kingdom. It's not about this, it's not about eating or drinking, it's about the righteousness that comes from being right with God, and peace that comes from it, and the joy that knows that we will make it all the way home. I think that's what Paul is saying in this text. So what are some things that you or I may be doing that could cause a brother or sister to stumble? where are some issues that I may be playing deputy over an issue that's not very important. We have a slogan in our country. It's called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Now, that may be a good and noble concept in regards to governing the masses compared to other faulty systems of government. But when carried too far and used as a paradigm for all of life, especially life in the kingdom of God, it can quickly become disastrous. Your life is not about your life and your pursuit of happiness. Our life is about the glory of God in the new neighborhood that he's building, which is the kingdom of God. I think that's what he's saying. Let's keep reading verses 22 and 23. He says, The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, you don't need to give up your liberty but you don't need to exercise it in situations that you know will cause har- harm. So live so that as you look back on your own freedom, you won't cringe or judge yourself because you caused someone to stumble. That's the kind of head on a swivel life that Paul's calling us to. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And I think here he ends verse 23, chapter 14. And you know that in the original writing of Romans, there weren't chapters. So it's not like Paul's trying to come out on a high point here in verse 23. He didn't even have verses. But what I think verse 23 is telling us is, is, is it's, a, it's a kind of fastball. It's, it's a reminder of how important this is. He says in verse 23, I think he's talking to the weak here. If, if, if you have doubts that you're, you shouldn't do this or that, Obey your conscience, because even if you're theologically wrong, that you shouldn't eat that meat or drink that wine, and you go along with whatever the masses are doing, just because you think it's the thing to do in the community, you're in danger of setting up a kind of mode of life where you don't live out of your faith in God, but by what, but by what everybody else around you does. Do you see that? And so I think in verse 23, he's saying to the strong and weak, obey your conscience. It's better that you work this out with God and maybe be weaker in your stance on this issue and not just go along with what everybody says, because if you don't, you're in danger of just following the, the, the status quo, what everybody else around you does. And you will then, when you enter your own conscience, when you go against your own conscience, even if, if it's weak, it will make it easier for you to go against your conscience on the next issue and the next and the next and the next. And then, before you know it, you're caught up in a riptide that's pulled you out to sea and you can't live from the core, this faith that God has given you. And so, if that's an admonition to the weak, again, a kind of rejoinder, a reminder of how important is it for us who are strong to be tender with people so that the way we exercise our freedom isn't unwittingly causing them to be pulled out to sea against their own conscience. Friends, these are weighty things. How important. How important is what we're doing here together as a local church? How important is it? It's, oh friends. You know what? The news, there's just something cranked out of Washington, D.C., every every day. Something out of Paris, something out of London, something out of Moscow. And, And that all that's important. I'm not minimizing that. Actually, I am. It's important. But friends, I submit to you that the most important living and decision-making for eternity is going on in little places like Crosspoint all across the world, how the local church lives together. What happens here as we live out the gospel is more important than anything else. Life together. Life together. I conclude with this with just kind of three quick thoughts. Friends, number one, this is not easy. This is not easy to live in this type of intentionality together. Two, this is a great privilege. This is a great privilege. This is a great privilege. God has designed the plan of redemption to be displayed through the local church. Friends, we're part of the bride of Christ. That's a phenomenal privilege. And third concluding thought is that nothing is more important than previewing what the kingdom is about to an onlooking world. It's not easy. It's a great privilege, and nothing's more important. So we need God's we need God's help, and He's promised us His His help. So let me read this text and then pray. This is His promise to us through the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews thirteen, verse twenty through twenty one. Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. In other words, enable you as a group of people to live together in a way that you limit your liberty because of love and your love builds the body. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, which would make you acceptable to God, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so I'm going to pray. And then the band's going to sing a song. And then Reuben's going to read a benediction and and, and send us on, on our way. Don't shoot out of here. Please don't. Linger. Love. Look around. Greet. Pray. Write down phone numbers. Invite to lunch. Set up coffee. Love one another. Consider how we might stir one another up to love and good deeds. And let's all become more like Jesus, so that the little model neighborhood of Crosspoint becomes a clearer picture of what the kingdom is all about. Lord, as we we consider this text, help it make Crosspoint more like heaven. Help this little local embassy of the kingdom that is coming be a better picture of what citizenship will look like in heaven for all of eternity. Lord, we need help with this. I need help with it. We're not perfect. We're, there's so many wonderful things going on here in this church and there's so much more for us to do and what a, what a joy. What a joy it is to, to strive to live together in this way. Lord, help us in practical and small ways to live this out. For my friends that are in this room that don't know Jesus, Lord, would, you, would this picture of what you are doing in your people for the sake of the glory of Christ. May it so warm and melt their hearts. May it be like an aroma that would draw them into the home so that as Doug read in our call to worship in Psalm 34, so that the world would taste and see that the Lord is good and that you would use places like Crosspoint and local churches in our city to be the place where they taste and they see the kingdom is about, that Jesus is our only hope, and that they can find life alone with you. Help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.